What do you do when God sends a prophet? I want you to ask yourself that. What do you do when God sends a prophet? And before you answer it too quickly with the Sunday school answer of, of, you know, we listen to him. What do you do when someone asks you to do something that's going to cost you something? And that cost doesn't have to be in money. But what do we do when someone asks us to do something and it's going to cost us something? You know, it's really easy to say we'll do anything that anyone asks of us if it doesn't cost us very much. It's easy to help someone when we don't have to spend our money, when we don't have to waste our time, when we don't have to put any energy or effort into it. It's really easy for us in that situation to say, oh, yeah, I'll help. But as your car mechanic comes to tell you, you need this done to your car before it explodes. And then he tells you it's going to cost you five times more than you ever could have dreamed. We hesitate before we say, oh, yeah, go ahead and do it. Oh, yeah, I can pay for that. Because we slowly reel in our minds, this is, this is going to cost a lot. This is going to cost more than I expected to spend. What I want us to see this morning is when God sends a prophet, he asks us to do something, and it's going to cost us a lot. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, how much are you willing to give? How much are you willing to give to follow Jesus? Here in Ezra, the people have been called to rebuild the temple of God. This is who they were as a people. They were a people that worshipped Yahweh. That is what made them distinct from all the nations around them. They had bought materials from Lebanon. The temple was to be filled with gold and purple. It was going to cost them something. It was going to cost money to build. But as we read the book of Haggai and Zechariah, we realize that God wasn't just asking them for their money. God wasn't only asking them for their time. He was asking them for their hearts. God was asking his people to give them everything they had. He was asking them to give themselves. This is what God requires of his people. All of them. Their hearts, their souls, their minds, everything. He requires us. And we have to ask ourselves, how much are we willing to give? When God sends a prophet, he requires complete and exclusive covenant loyalty. Just as the demand of covenant marriage demands of us. Exclusive covenant loyalty. And that takes everything, right? Those of you who are married, it takes everything. Yet our problem 
as is the same problem with the people in Ezra 5, is that our hearts are continually looking for something else. Our hearts are continually looking for something else to fulfill our needs. Our hearts are continually looking for anything except God himself. Our hearts look for things we think money can buy, whether it be our children, our schedules, our future homes, our status, that boat, that bike, that trip. How much are we willing to give to follow Jesus? This morning we find ourselves in Ezra chapter 5. If you remember a few weeks ago in Ezra 4, we swept through an entire century of biblical history. The chapter begins in 536 B.C. where King Cyrus is ruling over Persia. And he sent the Judeans, the Jews from Babylon, to rebuild the house of their Lord. And then we swept through chapter, or in verse, chapter 4, verse 5, Ezra jumps to King Darius of Persia. And then in verse 6, he jumps to Xerxes, king of Persia. Then in verse 7, he goes to Artaxerxes, covering 80 years of history. And then we read through the letter where the people of the land were constantly frustrating the people of God. And then what seemed like warp speed from chapter from verse 23 of chapter 4 to verse 24, we jump back 60 years and we are found where we are this morning in 520 B.C. How many of you have ever read a chronological Bible? If, if you haven't and you're ever wanting to, every major translation, the NIV, the ESV, and if you're real hardcore, the King James Version, they still, they, or they make a Bible that you can read chronologically through the Bible. Well, if you have a chronological Bible, once you get to Ezra 4, 5, and 6, you immediately jump to Haggai and Zechariah. For where we are at the end of chapter 4 in Ezra, the second year of King Darius is exactly where Haggai 1 and and Zechariah 1 begin. In the second year of King Darius of Persia. And so we find ourselves in Ezra 5 trying to understand the full scope of the context of where we are. And to do that, we have to read what Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying to the people of God. And what we find this morning might not be what you expect. Because in chapter 4 of Ezra, the people's plans were frustrated. The building of the house of the Lord had ceased. So, of course, these prophets are going to prophesy about the people of the land, right? Because chapter 4 gave us a good glimpse at what it means for the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that we see in Genesis 3 played out in reality. The people of the land, the people of the world will always frustrate the people of God. And so we can only expect that Haggai and Zechariah prophesy against the people of the world, right? But that's not what they prophesy about. They prophesy to the people of God and say, you have lost your way and you are in sin. 
You are God's own people, but you are pursuing your own way and not God's way. Repent of your sin. And this morning, so you're, you're getting a condensed version. The first service, I had three points. This service, I have one point because I didn't get to the other two points. This morning, we're going to look at Haggai. Haggai as a meddler. Because this is exactly what God's prophets do in the lives of his people. He meddles in their lives. On this American Life radio broadcast, you can often hear the quote, there's the thing that you plan to do, and there's the thing that you end up doing. Most of us start off our lives with some plan A, and then we abandon it, and we live in plan B. That becomes our lives. Now, some of us might be living in plan B. Some of us might have already been to plan E. We had high hopes from the beginning. We dreamed big, but then life happened. Time got short. The consequences for our decisions come to fruition. And as my vice principal said every day in the intercom before school, the choices you make today shape your world tomorrow. For some of us, plan B might be better than we ever thought plan A could be. But we find ourselves here, living a life that none of us could have dreamed, none of us could have hoped for. Children and youth, dream big. Our church wants you to dream big. Make big plans. But as we will see today, if your plans don't consist of following the will of the Lord, you will never find happiness. In Haggai 1, also in Ezra 5 and Zechariah 1, we find the people of God who have come to a land, and they came enthusiastic, ready to build. The exile, Babylon, is in the rearview mirror. But yet we find them 16 years after the end of the land, and they've lost all hope. 16 years is a long time. And over those 16 years, nothing has happened quite as they had anticipated. Most of the people who lived in Jerusalem had long since ceased or expected God to work. God to fulfill his promises. Zechariah tells us it was easy for the people to conclude there was that they were in the day of small things. Was this all that God had to offer them? Is this plan B the better life? Mediocre, mundane, meaningless. Interstage right, Haggai. And we find very similar words, very familiar words that we find from prophets. Haggai comes and says, thus says the Lord of hosts. But then he says something that we're not used to. In verse 2, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. The people say, not God says, the people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And for us who've been in Ezra, we know the answer, right? We know why the people haven't rebuilt. 
the people of the world are frustrating their plans, right? The seed of the serpent is undoing what the seed of the woman, God's chosen people, have been called to do. But what this text reveals to us is that the people were living in sin. In verse, verses 3 to 4 of Haggai 1, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Nobody disputed that the temple was supposed to be rebuilt. It had been over 70 years since the original temple had been destroyed. So what is God implying? What is he saying when he says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Well, this word for paneled house is a very special word. It's only used six times in the entire Bible. Five times it is used in 1 Kings. And then the sixth is here. All five times it's used in 1 Kings, paneled house describes the temple of God. The point that Haggai is trying to make is that the people were quite happy building their own homes to have paneled houses, rather than building a home which is described as the temple of God in 1 Kings. They were doing what God had asked them to do, except they were doing it for themselves and rather for God's own glory. But I'm sure they had a good reason, right? I mean, the world was frustrating their plans. It's the sixth month, as we see in Haggai. It's the sixth month. It's the harvest time. So they're busy. They were building their own homes. So they were busy. They were trying to earn their own wage. They were busy. Yet what we find is that in all of their busyness, what they were really pursuing was their own glory. Because they were too busy. Haggai is revealing to the people that their cheap facade of telling themselves that they're doing the work of the Lord is just masquerading their own sin because all they wanted to do was to bring glory to themselves. They were doing their own work for their own means to their own end. And so God sent his prophet. And what Haggai said to them is all that their, all their work was doing is leading them to nothing. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns a wage does it so to put them into a bag with holes. The people were not building because of the people of the land. The people were not building because they had lost sight of who they were. They had lost sight of what they were called to do. They were not acting out of faith in their obligations to the covenant. They were acting out in their own interests. And as a result, they were reaping the consequences for their decisions. They were running faster and faster, like a hamster on a treadmill going nowhere. Does this sound familiar for your own life? 
Are you in plan B and you're not sure where you're headed? Not sure just what God has called you to do. Without kingdom goals or principles, without hope that God is really alive and active amongst his people. This is what Haggai says. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. God was calling them out of their excuses. God was calling them out of their transgression and sin. God was calling his people to repentance. This is what we see in Zechariah 1. He says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. They were being called out of their sin. And they were called to fulfilling the reason that God had created them as a special nation. To bring him glory. And what we find, this this might be interesting to you, because what we typically read is, let's follow after God so that he will bless us. But that's not the reason that God has given his people here to follow him. He says, build this house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified. This is a reckoning. Haggai is a meddler. He's meddling in the little things of the people's lives. We all know a meddler, right? Someone who interferes with our plans. Constantly getting in our business. What Haggai is revealing to the people through the proclamation of God's word is that they have no right to live in the houses that they live in while the Lord's house lay in ruin. The people of God were hiding their good intentions, intentions, and God sent a prophet to reveal to them the sin that they didn't even know about. They had believed they were living the godly life. And yet what Haggai reveals to them is that they were actually receiving God's curse. Look in verses 10 and 11. Therefore the heavens above shall withhold the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on this land, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and on the ground that brings forth, on man and beast as on all their labors. This description echoes the pronouncement of curse from Deuteronomy 28. Inviting the only conclusion, they were being unfaithful to God's covenant as his people. Over this past week, I've heard numerous people bring up the concern that for the first time in our country's history, Christianity has fallen to the minority position. And I've heard of the great fear that we have of the direction that our country is headed in. But let me ask you something. Do you believe that we could be living in the same type of situation that we find Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah? Do you believe that we could be covering up our good intentions with God's work 
but we could actually be living in our own sin? Do you believe that there's a possibility that the reason Christianity is falling to the wasteland has nothing to do with the people of the land, but has to do with God's own people? Could it be the fruit of our own faithlessness? In Mark 4, John or Jesus tells a tantalizing parable. He tells the parable of the sower, and this is what Jesus says. The sower sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since it had no depth of the soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out and yielded no grain. The other seed fell in good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing a yield and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. Later, Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. The sower sows the word, the word of the Lord. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a little while. Then when tribulation and persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those where the, so, where the sown in good soil are the ones that hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. In my own life, I can see that the cares of the world far outweigh the cares for the kingdom. How easy it is for me to spend a little bit more time on my phone or on my bike, or doing whatever I want to do, rather than planting the seed of the word in the souls of my own children. How easy it is for us to say that the reason Christianity is decreasing is because of the way of the world, rather than looking at our own lives and the work of the kingdom of God. rather than looking at our own lives and realizing that we have harvested much, but we have sown little. This is what Haggai is telling the people of God. You think you're doing the work of the kingdom, but you're not. You're serving your own interests. You see, Haggai's meddling in their faith. He's using the word of God to convict the people that they might turn in repentance so that God might even reveal their hidden sin that they don't know about. This is what the word of the Lord does. And it changes people. It reveals that their lives look nothing as they should. It looks covenantally unfaithful. But then listen to this. 
what we see in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. And then verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord their God. This is the same thing that we should ask that God does of us. That he calls us to repentance and that we leave our sin behind to do the purpose of God's kingdom. To do what God has called us to do as his people, to sow the seed of the word. Because it's the gospel of Jesus that changes people. Haggai is meddling. And as a church, we should always pray that whoever stands behind this desk meddles in our life. We should pray that whoever stands behind here doesn't become stagnant or worried about what we're doing in our own lives other than building the kingdom of God. We do not want to be so preoccupied in our own building plans, that we neglect the work of God in our homes, in our community, in our country, even in the entire world. In Ezra 5, the Lord sends his prophet to preach the word to men and women of God and praise God they follow by faith because the Lord worked in them. And God is doing the same for us. Through the regular preaching of the word, God is sowing his seed to transform us into his own people. He calls us to repentance that our hearts will no longer wander after the ways of the world, but our hearts will seek after Jesus. He calls us to examine our lives to confess our sins. We are like the people of Ezra. If you remember in Ezra 3, what did they celebrate? Foundation Day. Foundation Day was the day that they laid the foundation of the temple and rebuilt the altar so they could build their sacrifices. And they had just a spectacular worship service. We celebrated our Foundation Day last week. The church's Foundation Day was the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cornerstone, the foundation upon which the church is being built. You remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And what Paul says in Ephesians 2, Jesus came and preached. He preached the word. He preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit and to the Father. So then you no longer are strangers 
and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and with fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the house of, of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the temple of the Lord. That is what God is doing at Christ Presbyterian Church when the word is preached. God is calling his people to be transformed into the body of Christ to do the will of God so that his kingdom might come here in Fayette County. God no longer speaks to us through his prophets who receive the, the word of the Lord through a vision. God has proclaimed his truth to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And through the ministry of the word, he will build his temple. Our question is, how much are you willing to give? What are you willing to do? Is this your vision? Or are you too busy? And we can see in verse 13 what God did with the people once they repented of their sin. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Then once we read in Haggai 2, or we see in Haggai 2 what we are experiencing today. God is shaking the nations and bringing the people into obedience to the gospel of Jesus. God is bringing in the nations through Jesus to be his people, that he might work through them. Look at what God is asking the people to do. He's asking them to partake in the renewing of the cosmos. We've been chosen to join in with God's mission. How blessed are we to glorify the God that has created all things to be considered in this mission of building the church of Jesus Christ. We can no longer say it is not yet time to build. God's already building his church on Christ. And if we're so worried about what's going on in our lives, we'll miss it. Our hearts will long after something else that won't satisfy it. The Lord is building his church. If you've lost hope because you think plan B isn't enough, I've got great news for you. The people in Haggai and Zechariah's time, they didn't think they, didn't think they were going anywhere. And then God shook the nations when he came to dwell amongst his people in Jesus. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And he prophesied of a day that the Lord would again fill the temple with his glory. And the glory and the temple are both for the person of Jesus. I, I, I find it interesting the people 
that are named over and over in Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra. Zerubbabel, the governor, the seed of David, and Jeshua, the high priest, and through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. All of this, all that the Lord is doing in 520 B.C. is preparing his people for a better prophet, for a better king, and a better high priest who is Jesus. What do you do when God sends his prophet? The easy answer, again, is just to listen to him. But as a church, may our answer be to obey him and follow him by faith wherever he may lead. And guess what? Biblical faith is hard. But what it leads to is the glory of God. This is where God is leading us. In Mark 10, a young man comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the young man responded, and listen to the way he responded. And he said to him, teacher, I have done all these things for my youth. And Mark says that Jesus looked at him lovingly and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Listen to how the young man responded. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had many great possessions. To follow Jesus, it requires us to lose everything. He demands everything. He expects everything. And here's the hope that we have. We have received everything in Christ. Amen.